This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at ByteCheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative ByteCheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the ByteCheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The ByteCheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the ByteCheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting ByteCheck.com. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. We always talk about immersion as one of the best ways to learn. Learn cybersecurity, learn different skills and techniques. Our next guest is no stranger to immersion. We have James Hadley, CEO of Immersion Labs, and we talk about the best ways to learn in cybersecurity. Without further ado, let's jump right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio. And as always, we have an amazing guest. We have an ex-GCHQ security researcher. And for anyone that doesn't know what GCHQ is, it's an intelligence agency. Our guest today is James Hadley, CEO of Immersive Labs. James, when we first met, we had a great conversation about education and aptitude, but Really appreciate you taking the time out and joining us on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. James, as you know, one of our big passions is education and different ways of learning. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, let's hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Prior to starting Immersive Labs, I was a GCHQ security researcher. I spent a lot of time in in different organizations working in security research and technology. And then I had a career change to become an instructor teaching cybersecurity at the GCHQ Cyber School. And the purpose of that school was to upskill and create cyber talent that would go on to work in UK industry. And it was during that time that I identified a number of things around the way people learn cybersecurity. And that's what ultimately led me to create Immersive Labs. So the four things which I'll quickly pick up on and we can dive into in more detail. First of which is a classroom as it was, this 10-week school can't scale to the volume of talent that's needed to help plug the cyber skills gap. The second one is cybersecurity moves so quickly. There's always a new piece of malware coming out, a new tool, a new piece of threat intel. And actually, it takes months, if not a year, to write a really, really great classroom-based course because of all the materials. And actually, that dates really quickly. So it's hard to keep the classroom up to date with how fast cybersecurity moves on. The skills decay quite quickly. And I think the final thing for me was academic background had little to no bearing or influence on how the individuals developed those skills. It was down to a number of aptitudes or traits, which were analytical thinking, problem solving, troubleshooting, perseverance, self-research and curiosity. And it was the combination of those things with the fact that you can't measure the knowledge, skills and abilities within people that have sat in a classroom, which made me think, hang on, if there was another way of doing it, 
you could actually not only keep skills up to date and facilitate those aptitudes, but you could also measure it. And that's why I came up with the concept of this challenge-based learning and then created Immersive Labs, which runs a platform for facilitating and creating dynamic environments to let people upskill, but in a way that can be measured. And I'll always remember one sort of quote that came through, which is, I remember uh, reading, which is the best cybersecurity talent likes to learn, but they don't like to be taught. It makes me think of my own personal journey through education. I was a terrible traditional student. I really didn't like the cookie cutter frameworks of of public school education. I think I would have done much better at like a Montessori style school where it's sort of self-driven. Like, what are the questions that I want the answers to? What are the projects I want to work on? I was very, very technically minded when I was young, always taking apart computers, tinkering around, figuring things out. I think I would have been better suited in a more I guess, progressive style of learning. What was your experience through the education system? Did you have a similar feeling? And, and this is why you brought Immersive Labs to the world? Yeah, I think our, our histories are very similar. I struggled in school academically. I find that I have quite poor memory and I would always learn better through doing things rather than reading about things or being told things. It would kind of go in one ear and out the other. So yeah, I was a geek growing up. I, I played with computers because I didn't have any friends. And then rather than go the academic route of university or college, I, I joined uh, GCHQ. So you were saying you were a geek in high school. How did that affect, you know, your progression to now become CEO of a company? I'm sure like there's a lot of things that you've had to learn and also change about yourself to kind of be in this position from that point. This, was, this is actually showing my age. I remember having a 386 computer. And I was uh, determined to get it to run Windows 3.11, even though it was below the minimum spec. <laughs> and I must have spent weeks, if not months, trying to tailor tiny bits of what was on the floppy disk to remove material to, in the hope it would eventually uh, run. But it always blew screened and it, it beat me. I think um, over the years, I, I worked in sort of consultancy roles. So I had to kind of work out how do you, how do you take technical knowledge and then how do you play that in a way in which the person you're speaking to, it resonates with and has value. Because I think too often, if we, if technical people speak technically, non-technical people, then it, it doesn't add value, it just goes over their head. So therefore it's a need to, to be able to translate the geekery uh, to the impact or the, the messaging that the person wants. And I think part of that is actually selling. So yeah, we're a vendor now, Immersive Labs, and we'll talk about cybersecurity, but we, we have to talk about risk and benefits and value because uh, technology is sometimes too, too in the weeds. You talk about measuring education. You know, when we think about measuring education, you kind of go back to the old mindset of standardized tests and things like that. But we find that that measures very specific things. And sometimes the data is biased and all these issues that kind of come along with that. What have you thought about those types of concepts within education and how do you think that we can fix some of that even in the normal education system today? For me, it's about outcomes that you, you want people to be able to achieve and can people demonstrate those outcomes because that's what you have in the workplace. You know, if, if you get hit by a ransomware, you know, you, the person that you want to be able to resolve the incident is the person that can demonstrate they've done it before, not the person that you know, rolls out a CISSP certificate from their desk drawer. And I think for me, it's about outcomes and from my experience as being a teacher or an instructor, the way they were being tested at the time, which was multiple choice. Hey, every three weeks, we're going to give you 100 questions of multiple choice, and that will determine who's doing well in this 10-week school. And it gave false re results because it rewarded those that had a really good memory, 
that could understand the question that was being asked quickly and could look at the different answers and kind of you know, narrow it down to get to the right result or, or recall it from memory. Whereas those multiple choice quizzes would filter out people that most they might not be able to remember it. They know the muscle memory of problem solving and troubleshooting to achieve an outcome that would be required in a given security role. So I think it unfairly biased those. And also because of the syntax, especially around command line and what have you, it actually multiple choice can be very hard for those that are dyslexic or dyspraxic in trying to determine the difference between these answers that look very similar. And also those kind of tests can also have bias against neurodiverse individuals. So when looking at all of this, right, we have standardized tests or certification tests that have multiple choices, which is a little bit rigid. And then on the, on the other hand, we actually have syntax. We have command line that takes in certain commands and certain arguments. So in some ways, maybe the multiple choice could be helpful because it gets you that, that frame of mind to identify commands. Where do you think is that balance between giving a good test, you know, being able to measure a specific outcome to not have to like do that rote memory or just be an expert test taker? If you speak to people, they generally understand that yeah, being able to demonstrate a skill is probably more valuable than recalling how you do something. But it's hard to be able to run that at scale in a way that it doesn't take much too much time to kind of test. Because waiting for the outcome could be long and you have to set up environments to do it. So coming back to your question, I think what we've seen is where companies today, for example, especially as it comes to cybersecurity, might run technical interviews over a phone. Like talk me through how you do this. Talk me through how you would uh, investigate a piece of malware. Talk to me how you would isolate an incident on the network and how you communicate what decision you've made. The problem with that approach is you're only then running the technical assessment from the people you've already screened the CV down from, the resume. Mm -hmm. So you advertise a job, and typically to make your life easier, employers, what we see is that advertise must have X years experience and certifications like CISSP, CISM, CEH. And as a result of that, they're only getting candidates through, a smaller number of candidates through, that they're then running the technical screening process against or the phone interviews, or even in some cases, challenges, which they'll, they'll get sent to solve. And you're not opening up your recruitment funnel at that point, because you're just filtering the people that already have the credentials that come into that funnel. At Immersive, we want large enterprise organizations to advertise jobs that require and mandate no experience and no certifications and no qualifications. And the test should be, we want to hear from people who can do X, um, who can look at events and patterns to find data, who can investigate malware, who can code up and create exploits, and then use software to then identify those people based on their skills and then bring forward those people to interview. So you're removing all of the bias around academic background, access to education, certification funding, and it's down to those that can and that they are brought forward for interview and screening rather than those that have. When I think about stuff like this, I think about the journey of going through building something like this and then all of the discoveries that you make along the way. I'd love to hear a bias that you came into this scenario with or even an unknown unknown. And what was that biggest aha that you've had going through this entire journey? One thing I hadn't ever considered is that if you use any kind of remote test, like, hey, you can start this test at home and we'll record the screen, or you know, you can fill in this, this questionnaire, or even in our platform, like solve problems with hands-on labs, 
a lot of uh, employers would naturally want to use the time taken and accuracy as a way of prioritizing who they would bring forward to interview. So, for example, you know, candidate A completed the assessment in 30 minutes, candidate B did it in 45 minutes. Well, I'll, I'll bring forward candidate A. But actually, that has an unfair bias towards anyone at home that might be caring for another person or has young children. Because if they need something at that moment in time, you can't ignore it and you have to go and do it. But that ultimately means it's taking you longer to complete the challenge. So by prioritizing people's abilities on time, you can apply an unconscious bias to those that have caring requirements at home. And therefore, when we're working with enterprise organizations, we're trying to sort of say that all of these data points are useful, but none of them should be used in isolation because it can have a bias effect. I always like hearing about stuff like this. How can we get, you know, really the right people in the right opportunity? One of the the gaps I, I see in a lot of platforms, and I would love to hear your perspective on it, is feedback loops, right? So understanding like what metrics are good, which metrics aren't necessarily the most insightful. How do you go about that process of getting that feedback after you find opportunities for candidates? So the way I often analogize immersive labs, and what I should say is in terms of giving opportunities to people, I think with a classroom-based approach, you, you might put in 80 or 20 students into a classroom, and then over a, a period of time, a percentage of those would go, wow, I really love this content, I love cybersecurity, and I'm going to each pursue this as a career. And others might use the experience to go, Do you know what, I've enjoyed learning some of this, but this isn't for me as a career. And therefore, it's quite expensive as a way of bringing people in. We run a number of digital cyber academies for students and military veterans and neurodiverse individuals. And I think in terms of the feedback loop, it's helping those individuals identify routes to jobs or careers or roles, which motivates and excites them. And I think through challenge-based learning, because it's hands-on, if people go, do you know what, I don't enjoy this, I'm not, I'm not enjoying solving this challenge, it can give them the feedback loop that this isn't the right role for them. But the great thing about cybersecurity is the variety of roles that are out there, ranging from you know, those that are in more compliance roles around risk and architecture, governance, uh, compliance and privacy, all the way through to the very, very hands-on sort of reverse engineering malware and exploit development. So I think the feedback loop is getting people hands-on access with experiences, which they then either complete those objectives or they get frustrated and sort of opt out. And I always use immersive labs as an example. It's like a swimming pool. So people can go in the shallow end and see how deep they can get. Or if they've already got some skills and capability, they can jump straight into the deep end. It's up to them. And I think a lot of processes out there are quite linear and quite gate-based. So you can only get to gate two or gate three once you've done gate one or gate two, which can often put off really experienced practitioners if they're having to do basic things that they find frustrating to do again. Or it can hide the opportunities that exist in the later gates to those that are maybe not interested in those kinds of roles. You know, when I think about education and I think about adversaries and I think about the good side, I think there are a lot of parallels. Uh, we once had a conversation with Stephen Kotler and Stephen Kotler is the foremost expert on flow and flow states. And I asked him a question about how do you do flow versus flow? Because obviously there are adversaries that want to be in a flow state as well. And then you think about education. Obviously, the enemy is, is wanting to learn as much as possible to then affect us on our jobs and vice versa. We're trying to learn so then we can protect. What are your thoughts around that dichotomy of learner versus learner in this world of cybersecurity? Attackers have the advantage 
because their entire day or week can be spent on learning something which is going to help them achieve their outcome of getting a foothold on a network or deploying some ransomware, which will give them a personal economic gain that is relatable to the size of the prize of which they've gone after. Whereas I think as defenders within corporate environments, we have our day job. So this is what we expect you to do as part of your day. And if you are very, very fortunate, you'll be given access to funding and tooling and the time to upskill and train yourself on the latest things or more in-depth on given areas. But from what we see, that time is very little and often none, or they're expected to do it in their own time where they might have family commitments at home. So I think learner versus learner in the good or the, yeah, the, the threat actors, the threat actors have the advantage because they have a, an incentive of the prize and they can spend as much time as they can in order to learn about that exact one thing to help them get their hands on the prize. Whereas as people in organisations and defenders, we have to solve all of the attacks and defend against everything, but we're not actually given the time and the tooling to do it. This makes me think of, you know, going back to a few topics ago that we were just speaking about is having the right opportunity. We were talking about certifications. We talked about learning. We talked about education. But how do you get this insight on adversaries if this is your first time doing it? If this is your first opportunity as threat intelligence analyst, as a security analyst, a security engineer, how do you go about getting some of that information so you have the skill behind the aptitude of catching these bad guys? I think for us, it comes through storytelling. There's so much information in cybersecurity. If you try to understand and learn and read a story, you, you would never finish, especially because there's more and new content being produced all of the time. Like a good example would be the, the MITRE attack framework. There's a lot there. And you couldn't be an expert, I think, in every part of every technique. So I think for us at Immersive, we do it through storytelling. So based on the complexity of the content we're talking about, the audience and where they are on their journey, be it a tier one, you know, SOC tier one analyst, you know, junior analyst according to the NIST framework, all the way through to advanced, we take them on a story, which is this happened and it was this threat actor against this thing in the real world. Now you can do it too and get your hands on. And here's the background information that you need that's relevant to this outcome that you're trying to achieve. So it's giving them bite-sized information, and it's either in a fictional story that we've built to help gamify the experience, or a real incident that's happened in real life that we've then turned into labs in our platform, so that the individual, depending on their role, will get the content that's relevant to that particular attack, rather than having to go straight in the deep end where everyone's assumed to be a, a deep-level practitioner. I'd love to hear a story of someone that you've seen go through this process of learning and go on to do great things, incredible things, almost seemingly impossible. You hear about a lot of folks that are able to memorize facts and figures and they go through and they do great. They have a 4.0 GPA, but I'd love to hear somebody that was able to apply that knowledge and do something great in cybersecurity. There's a couple of examples. Say we have had uh, an individual who was transitioning out of the military and hadn't done anything in cybersecurity before, and then uh, identified that we were running this veteran cyber academy where um, we would give free access to our platform. But then within the platform, we had the capability for people to apply for jobs so that they could, once they got to a certain level of skill, they could unlock a job advert and then apply for it based purely on their skills rather than their background. And we had a, a military veteran who came onto the platform, uh, rose at the top of the leaderboard, 
and then uh, ultimately went on to work in cybersecurity. And the, the UK media, uh, BBC, ran a whole thing about veterans in cyber, citing uh, this individual, his name is Phil Kempton, as one of those people. So went straight into cyber using our platform and then got a job and then became a figurehead, probably looking for a different word, actually. But someone that was could be, be held up as, look, non-technical background, new in, used the platform, got a job in cybersecurity. And we've had others that have also used the platform and then got into cyber jobs and then written us letters to say, like, thank you, without your platform, I wouldn't have got into cybersecurity because they'd chosen a different academic background on their route into university. And I think a lot of that becomes we don't have role models. That's probably the word I was looking for earlier, that we evangelize as a career in that you can take and get paid well for. Yeah, you know, I have two young children. People will say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a doctor or an accountant or a fireman or an astronaut? We don't say IT or programmer or developer or cybersecurity analyst. We just don't tend to evangelize those roles to people that could be coming up through cybersecurity careers. I think that's a great point because there, there's two things that I think about here is I think about the people that, oh, I'm not that intelligent. I, I could never do cybersecurity and they sort of self-limit. But then also sort of what you're talking about is that people bring up the, the traditional careers that we've brought up for the last 60, 70 years as things that people can do. But now we're in an age where the workplace is changing. A lot of us are working remote. We're becoming more technical. We're building things, more innovation. What do you think is going to have to happen in order for us to look at cybersecurity and technology as the way, as the way for socioeconomic freedom and equality, but then also just as a way to, to give back to the world and our community? I think it's about it's signposting that it's not for the geeks in the basement, cybersecurity, and that there are a plethora of roles that exist to help further the security of countries and organizations, which is becoming its own global pandemic. You know, there isn't a week that goes by now without a large major corporation being affected by ransomware. And I think the good thing about cybersecurity, it has the cause, it has the mission behind it around keeping organizations and the, or people safe from attackers, which would also find analogous missions in, in military kind of careers or public service. One thing that we've seen at the moment is where, because of the scale of the problem, they're now running at a country level. So, for example, Northern Ireland have just uh, launched a huge campaign where any 16 to 25-year-old in Northern Ireland will get free access to uh, our platform. And then the government is working with large commercial organisations in the region to place people that self-identify and develop cybersecurity skills into jobs so that it can help plug the cyber skills gap at a national level. And I think by running a national campaign, signposting that the, the commercial opportunities, the opportunities exist and the compensation for those, and that here's this free thing that you can do from home without having to go somewhere, that you can then go and get a job. And I think if we can show that at country scale working, where we can create cyber talent out of thin air, I think we'll want to see that repeated across other country level initiatives. I have a question for the both of you. We're all passionate about getting more people into the industry and also getting the right skills fulfilled for organizations. If you were to take one cybersecurity job and tell the entire world about it to get everyone excited, which job would it be about? I'm biased. You know exactly what my answer is going to be. I would say threat intelligence because you can take someone that's largely non-technical, 
put them in a threat intelligence research role, and then they start to learn about all the terminology, all the concepts, all the emerging threats. And then you can slowly but surely start to take that and apply it to things that are practical, like hands-on operations that they could do. So I would say that if we, if I could tell everybody about threat intelligence, get them excited about cybersecurity in general, I think that you'd have a lot of people that would take that experience and expertise and spin off and do other things as well. Great question. And I'm glad that I got to go second. So I can formulate <laughs> my answer. I think I'd go for investigations, like open source or online investigations. I think Cybersecurity now spans an entire organization, and the largest organizations are coming to realize that typical crime, so fraud and money laundering, et cetera, identity theft, all of those things are now cyber-enabled money laundering, cyber-enabled fraud. And I think the roles where you're kind of doing investigations and almost becoming a detective, and then using the tools at your disposable information sources through a cyber lens of finding attackers and what they're doing, I think that for me would be fascinating because you get to the conclusion of hopefully identifying and stopping crime or identifying perpetrators. That's perfect. In both scenarios, you're having someone work through logical steps, whether it's figuring something out, piecing together stories. I think both of those are perfect. And Ron, don't think you're going to get away from your own question. <laughs> I'd love to hear what you think about that. For me, I've always been so in the weeds with technical information. I was going to say like an engineer, like a security engineer. But I do think that there is something special about the analysis, like you were saying, James, the investigation. Even for you, Chris, like the threat intelligence pieces. I think there's something really awesome about hunting, about catching criminals or catching someone that's making technology do something it's not meant to do. So I'd probably take that like security analysis or being an incident responder and take that to the masses. James, there's someone that's listening right now that feels like they're a terrible student. They're like, oh, I, I could never do anything with my mind. But in fact, the only issue is they haven't been able to apply their mind in a way that is best suited for them. And they want to get into something maybe perhaps technical. Maybe it is cybersecurity. What piece of advice would you have for that person that needs to find that place to apply their mind? Unfortunately, I think with cybersecurity, you always need access to some kind of resource. So you need some IT to get started. One thing I've realized is that everything I think now is, is learnable because it's all out there on the internet. If you've got the time and you know the resources to go to, yeah. all information is public now. The hard bit is knowing where to start, where to go, how to apply it, when to apply it, the right order of which to consume information and try things. That's that's become the tricky thing. There's too much information. So I think if my advice would be to get someone is just get started and then maybe look at the different job roles that exist in cybersecurity and find one that really lights up your passion. Because learning learning cybersecurity to get a job without the passion is hard. Because you want to get into the mindset, you want to be addicted, you want to stay up till 11 o'clock at night. I can't rest until I know why this tool has this outcome on this scenario. And I, and I need to understand that before I, I let it rest. So I think you need, if you can find a role that you're passionate about, then I just say get started because it's much better to find someone that's passionate and interested about it and has gone away to learn things than someone who has spent $50,000 on accreditations and certifications for which exam guides exist on the internet. Great piece of advice. 
Thanks for hopping on the mics with us. It really means a lot. Uh, for the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on in your world, what are the best ways that people can do that? Immersive Labs runs a community edition of our platform, actually. So anyone that's listening can sign up to that for free and get hands-on access to Cyber Labs to Upskill, where we also run a blog where we turn the latest threat intelligence and research into hands-on labs. So, for example, solar winds within three days of uh, the incident kicking off in our community mode, we had, I think, five labs where you could get hands-on access with the threat intelligence, who the threat actors are, and even try and recreate the analysis of the exact same malware that was used by the attackers. So the community edition of Immersive Labs is a great place to hang out because it's not only got the blogs about what we're up to, it also introduces people to the wider initiatives that we're running. Excellent. We'll be sure to drop a link to that in the show notes. James, really appreciate it. And we'll see everyone next time. Thank you for having me. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media, told a friend, or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform.